We are going to be in God's Word at the end of Romans chapter 11 and the beginning of Romans chapter 12 this morning if you have your Bibles with you. So one of the things, if you guys know me, that um, I am really interested in is education. It's uh, what one of my degrees is in. It's something I geek out about a lot. So if you want to know way too much about educational theory and why people think you learn the way you learn, um, I would love to take you out for coffee. And there we go. Um, This morning, I tell you that because we... We're going to have a little bit of an educational theory lesson for a second. Um, Over the last 50 years or so, one of the big developments in educational theory has been the discovery of what various educational theorists or pedagogists call a learning cycle. And it's it's a realization that we don't just simply learn one way. Now, this is different from like learning styles. Maybe you've heard of that before. No, this is, we don't learn one way in that our learning is a process that moves us through lots of different phases of thought and of action, all right? There's four of them. The first one is experience, and what this basically means is the feelings, memories, experiences, emotions, the things you bring to the table. When you are learning something, you are not a blank slate. You do not show up and just believe, you know, that that you can learn just like the person next to you. No, you're a unique human being. Secondly, there's actually stuff to learn in front of you, and you are interacting with that thing for real. It, again, is not that we are sawing your skull open and pouring a bunch of information in you're actually having to interact with something in front of you. And then you think about it. It's almost like a chemistry experiment. We take the stuff that was already inside your brain, we take the new stuff that's in your brain, we pour them together, and we see what cool colors of smoke get made. It is, uh, it is, it is a, 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 a thing of analysis. And then finally, we apply things. We actually do something with what we learn. Now, The reason I tell you all of this uh, is, in just a minute, I'm going to have Peter come up and read to you um, from the end of Romans chapter 11 and the beginning of Romans chapter 12. This passage of Scripture, Paul is, without knowing it, almost 2,000 years beforehand, he is naming some of these very things. And it's important for me to talk to you about this because some of the errors people make in their learning are some of the same errors. If we're not careful, we can make studying this passage. For instance, so you come again with your experiences, but what if you didn't? What if we assume, what if I assume this morning that you all are blank slates and you just start here with observations? Well, that's going to change a lot if you have a different vision of what a sacrifice is than the next person. If you grew up in a culture where animals died on the regular, or if you lived on a farm, or if you have hunted and you have seen or killed an animal yourself, it's going to be very, very different than if you only get your meat frozen from the clearance aisle at Kroger. It's different. 
you're going to interpret this text differently. What if we completely forget about application? So many of us are brains on a stick and we, maybe without realizing it or maybe with realizing it, we treat church like religious Boy Scouts and we are assembling knowledge merit badges. Um, We want to learn about this thing or we want to learn about this thing or we want to learn about this thing, but we're never really trying to put anything into practice. I think one of the things many of us do the most, actually, is we start with our experiences and we just shoot around very quickly to applications. How many of you have been in a Bible study before and you've done this yourself or seen someone else do it, where you look at the passage and everyone realizes, oh, we're reading that passage today. You know, I feel like it says to me that dot, dot, dot the sense of we're not actually interacting with anything other than our own preconceived feelings about something. And that moves us straight to some kind of application that might not actually be anchored in the text at all. This is a great way to think about doing Bible study, by the way, Um, just period, that we would always acknowledge what are we bringing to the table. We actually spend some time actually looking at the Bible Sometimes with my students, I'll actually print out the text with a lot of space between the lines, and I'll throw a bunch of highlighters at them and just let them go to town. And then we start analyzing, and then we make sure that we talk about what does this mean for us now in the 21st century in light of what the biblical authors meant. Again, I give you all of that. Because today, my great hope is that we would get something, not just a something, a word from God out of a very familiar text to many of us. This might be one of the most familiar texts in the work of Paul. But we want to make sure as we're looking at it, that we look at it rightly. and We don't necessarily commit some of the errors that we've just described here. So Peter, would you come and read for us from Romans 11 and 12? Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 11, beginning at verse 33 and reading through chapter 12, verse 2. All the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might repay? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this word, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray. Jesus, again, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for your word and for everything that we'll speak of this morning. Would you motivate us with joy, with passion, with purpose this morning to go out from this place 
and help our neighbors discover the love of Jesus, the love that has and is transforming and renewing us and indeed will change this whole world. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So again, learning cycle. Why is it important that we start talking about experiences, feeling, and remembering here in this passage? Well, it's because it's where Paul starts. You see, most of us, if you look at your worship guide or look at your Bible, we begin studying this passage in chapter 12, verse 1. It's a very, very common place to begin the passage. And it's not wrong in a sense. If you remember last week, we talked about how there are realistically three or maybe 2.5 sections in the book of Romans. There is Romans 1 through 8, where Paul does this incredible job of describing and defending the gospel. And then there's sort of an epilogue to chapters 1 through 8, and that's what 9 through 11 is about, which is this final big unpacking of the question, all right, Paul, you just named in chapters 1 through 8 the gospel that we don't deserve God. He gives us grace because of Jesus. And no matter what, we are not going to lose it because of how awesome and powerful and loving he is. What about Israel? There's sort of this final, you know, large thing Paul needs to unpack, and he does. And so really, in some ways, that's why I said 2.5, you can in some ways look at Romans as two pieces, chapters 1 through 11, and then 12 through the end of the book. The issue with that understanding is that we really, really like things that are clean cut in our culture. One of the things we love that is clean cut is organization. Some of you are very organized people, so this is doubly true for you. Others of you are not. But the Bible only uh, began to have uh, verses and chapter numbers worked out and, and eventually published as we started printing copies of the Bible about 400, 500 years after these letters and books were written. Now, I praise God for these things because it allows us to find passages. However, what it can do is overly introduce breaks in these sections. And this is one of the places that it introduces a break. We're going to read in chapter 12 one of the strongest exhortations, which means pastoral challenge, charge, given by Paul to God's people, that we might present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The reason I want to emphasize the learning cycle and the idea of coming to the table with something already is because what Paul does, he does not want you to receive this exhortation to present your body literally as a dead thing in some respects, though we'll unpack a little bit more of why that isn't totally the case, without also being absolutely covered in the incredible truth of what has come before in chapters 1 through 11. 
that we only are acting in this incredibly passionate, sacrificial way because God has already showered on us grace upon grace upon grace. And so in some respects, Paul, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, but Paul is kind of showing how the wheel goes like this, around and around and around. He's taken Romans 1 through 11, and one of his great applications is just worship and praise about how awesome the gospel is. But then he carries that here into chapter 12. We've talked before about these two words, but I'd like to define them again, indicative and imperative. It's, it's simply a biblical pattern that means indicative, what is true, and then, of course, imperative, this idea of that charge or what we must do, what the onus is on us. Scripture is very clear over and over and over again to show us a pattern of indicative coming before or at least alongside imperative. And this is actually very countercultural to the way you and I and, and our whole culture often think about imperatives. We actually enjoy challenges, even though we also hate them. We hate them because we're exhausted. We hate them because we have too many of them. We hate them because it feels like the to-do list never ends. However, we love them because of the seeming sense of control we have. At least we can know how we're failing rather than just feeling like complete and total failures. We can know. And what we do is we dupe ourselves into this belief that, oh, if I only added more effort, or, oh, if I only took a little bit off my to-do list. Or, oh, if I was only more caffeinated. Or, oh, if this freed up in my life or that or the other thing, then I would be able to accomplish what is being asked of me. We actually thrive on that sense of control. This is, in some respects, why our faith is so hard for us. Because it is the exact opposite of that. God is doing something inside of us, and we are responding to him. And sometimes it feels like the, the, these times in your life where you are actually putting the most work in, so to speak, God seems silent. And other times where it feels like you are hopeless and lost, the still small voice of God is there. Ultimately, we need to get better. I'll give, I'll give us a to-do, but it's a, it's a different to-do. We need to get better about remembering what God has already done before we start putting more things, even good things, from his word, exhortations from his word on ourselves. Israel was actually very good at this in their good years. Again, they didn't always have good years. We talked about that over the last couple of weeks. But the patterns of worship in Israel were literally set up to be rehearsals over and over again of the faithfulness of God. In some respects, secular society gets this. That's why if you go to any number of business-oriented mindfulness sessions or you find actually really, really good therapists one of the biggest things they will talk about are 
Gratitude journals, they're all over the place. Look up Pinterest. You will see them everywhere. It's not a bad thing, but it's rooted in this, this concept of have good things actually happened to you. Why? For the Christian, it isn't just a, oh, yeah, there have been some good things in my life. No, it's God has been faithful. It's the human embodiment of the theological truth that we talked about last week, right? That God doesn't break his promises. In our worship, but in our own lives, we need to have patterns of remembering and bringing to the surface the fact that God doesn't break his promises. The fact that Romans 8 is true, that God will never let go of us, that nothing in all of creation, including our own failures, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we need to acknowledge any time we come to a biblical exhortation that this is what we are bringing to the table, or rather, this is what God brings to the table on our behalf, that he is already active inside of us, that he has already been faithful to us, and he's been faithful in the community of faith. This is why I often talk about there will be days when I forget my faith and I need you to remind me because this doesn't happen alone. This happens together in worship, in small groups, in life. We need to be able to come to the table, both maybe physically this table in a few minutes, but just simply to the process of receiving God's word and receiving the good and sometimes hard exhortations of his word. We need to come to the table with what is already true. All right, let's move on. Observations. Thinking about important new details. At this point, again, I'm, I'm kind of using this, as I said, about as a, a model for what Paul is talking about. But in some respects, we're also just kind of doing this kind of inductive Bible study together. So wonderful. Um, I hope, again, this helps you. The one thing, though, I would highlight and I would circle and I would underline and I would scream from the heavens, if we were in a smaller Bible study together, is this. Therefore, if you didn't hear anything else I just said about educational theory and bringing something to the table, Paul brings it to the table for you. That you're not supposed to read this passage without taking into account what has come before. You cannot be someone who is going to be able to present your body as a living sacrifice if you are the one in whom that effort is based. You are only going to be able to do that if it is God who is the one empowering you. We know this through a number of different ways, and we don't have time to go into all of them today, but one of the things we do know is that one of the two individuals, the other is Isaiah, whom Paul is referring to or referencing back to here in Romans 11, is Job. 
And some of you know the story of Job. If you don't, it is a wonderful and horrible story all at the same time, or maybe horrible and then wonderful if you've read the ending. But towards the end of the book of Job, after all of these horrible things have happened to Job and God continues and remains to be faithful to Job, there is a moment in which God and Job have an interaction And that interaction is a difficult one. It's a difficult one because, in some respects, Job has been this fairly faithful individual throughout his time. And then finally, he kind of is exacerbated. He is is frustrated. He is tired. He is hurting. And he kind of gives it to God in some respects. And God's reply is what Paul is referencing here in chapter 11. This idea of, oh, Job, you think you understand things, and that gives you the right to question me. But you have no idea how deep this thing goes. You weren't here when I did this large thing, or this incredible thing, or this amazing thing. Paul here is referring back to Job to say the same thoughts about, Job, where were you when I created the world? Job, where were you when I set the stars in motion? Job, where were you when I literally raised the mountains up from the dirt of the earth? Those same overwhelmingly huge actions can be applied to, oh, Christian, where were you when I defeated your sin forever? Oh, Christian, where were you when your heart, as broken as it was, became mine. Oh, Christian, where were you when your own continued sin was not enough to beat me back? Paul, again, is now emphasizing not just what we bring to the table, but he is actually reinforcing it. Saying, you bring it to the table and you don't even know what you brought to the table. Let me tell you in even greater detail. We need to receive this as deep encouragement. Again, we're going to, I'm burying the lead here. We're going to talk about what this great sacrifice is as we move forward. But we need to receive this with great encouragement. What does it mean for us if we are coming into the great things God asks us to do, not only with a belief that Grace is there, so if I fail, God's still going to love me. I think that's sometimes how we reduce the gospel as it applies to us after we've become Christians. That it's sort of this, not just get out of hell free card, but it's a, you know, extra $200 that you slipped under the Monopoly money, under the ones, just so you can get out of things. Was I the only one who cheated like that as a kid? Maybe. Anyway, in reality, Paul's building us up. Paul's saying, yes, it's coming. It's going to be big. You can also do it. So what is it? Well, it's about to be this. We're going to present our bodies. We're not going to be conformed, but we are going to be transformed. And we are going to be involved in testing. Those are all very, very scary words. So let's incorporate the new. Let's analyze. What is Paul actually talking to us about? 
The emphasis of this passage, again, in 12.1 and 12.2 come together, is in some ways subtle. Because again, these are big words, aren't they? Transformation, being conformed, sacrificing, testing. Ironically, most of the emphasis here in this passage is actually passive. Paul just worked you up. I mean, like literally pep rally style to go out and do big things for God. And he's now going to tell you what the big thing that he wants you to do is. And that's to live. God is going to call you to live. Believe it or not, this is actually a theme throughout the work of Paul. And and it's a theme for a reason. If you remember biblical history, Jesus dies and comes back to life and is on the earth for 40 days, is seen by as many as 500 people, and then ascends into heaven. And this all happens around the year 30 or so AD. Paul is going to be converted to Christianity not too much later, and then he is going to have a number of decades of ministry planting all of these churches. Again, remember, this is why Romans exists, because it's a letter to the church in Rome, because Paul wants to keep going to Spain. Many accounts say he probably got there, though we're not for certain. But throughout a theme in Paul, Paul has been talking to real people. And there were a number of people in the early church who had, who had met Jesus or who had met the apostles, who knew the story and who were really, really excited. Also, they were suffering a lot. And so the idea of God coming back and making everything new and the Gentiles being a part of it, I mean, it was a party. And then you see the early church start to grow and we see literally day one, 3,000 people come to faith. And the next week we see 5,000 people come to faith. And then the church just explodes in growth and growth and growth. And then nothing. Seemingly nothing. I mean, sure, there's continued growth and there's continued activity in the church, but Jesus doesn't come back. How would you feel if you got really, really excited for God? For him to do big things in your life and in the life of this world and then time and effort and sin and brokenness and just the realities of this world start eating and eating and eating at that passion. I would actually venture to say for many of us that has actually happened, especially if you were someone who came to faith later in life. If you came to faith and can actually remember to a great degree not being a Christian, you see God doing this radical work in your life and you just cannonball into the gospel. Maybe it was a, um, maybe it was a campus ministry that you were part of in college and you go from hating Jesus or at least acting like, you know, he does not exist at all or doesn't matter if he does to you are leading Bible studies and you are sharing your faith and you were excited and you're going on mission trips and you're telling other people about Jesus and there's been this great awakening in your life. Perhaps something tragic has ha- happened to you like a death or an illness or a divorce and God radically saved you from those horrible waters and you remember it and you remember how your mind was on fire. 
And then you still have to wake up in the morning and discover that you didn't do the laundry and things are hard and work is still hard and kids are still hard and sickness is still hard. This theme resounds throughout Paul. That Paul says, Christian, that intensity that you feel, that presence of God that you feel is not wrong and is very good. And at the same time, you will not always be able to keep that up. And that does not negate God's work in you. God is at work in the quiet times in your life. God is at work in the frustrating times in your life. I, I, I desperately feel this. I, I need Jimmy and Trisha Egan both do a great job of reminding me and, and Christy and I of this. Um, kids are hard. Kids in worship are hard. There are entire Sundays that we go home and we're like, what did Jimmy even talk about? Because we were trying desperately to connect with our children and make sure they were worshiping and keeping fights from happening and then just seeing an absolute tornado wreck of bulletins and things on the floor over there. And one of the things they both do a really great job of reminding us of is that in some ways, caring for our children in the midst of worship is itself an act of worship. Is Jesus meeting us? There is a reality to what Jesus talks about in the book of Matthew, that whatever we do to the least of these, we do unto him. Well, that isn't only about homeless people or people who are hungry or thirsty. It also has to do with little kids. It also has to do with strangers who come into the church. It also has to do with me when I forget to clean something up after IDX and Alex has to send me a text that says, hey, Steve, can you do better next time? And I say yes again for the 17 trillionth time. Our daily activity is not secondary Christian work. Your daily activity is not secondary Christian work that then gets elevated to some primary Christian work status when you are overseas or when you are here at church serving or someday when you become a deacon or an elder or someday when you are in some special circumstance. The passiveness of these verbs, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, meaning you are continually in this process of testing and growth and changing and being shaped and molded so that you might know, discern what the will of God is. That is a daily endeavor. It is a daily endeavor. And this is why Paul can say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In some respects, this goes along with what Lin-Manuel Miranda said in the wonderful musical Hamilton as George Washington, dying is easy, young man, living is harder. But I think that's true because it, it can be very easy for us to adopt this martyrdom mindset, can't it? That as Christians, really only the good Christians are the ones who do stuff for the kingdom of God and the rest of us just sort of crash land onto the air pad of heaven 
we know God's got us, but the plane's not going back up in the air again. Like this, this idea that maybe it's the pastors or maybe it's the missionaries or the elders or maybe at least the people who have their lives slightly more put together that serve him. And we're just there. Good extra collateral growth. It's not the case. You and I continually are being shaped and grown and conformed not to this world, but to the identity of Jesus through our daily actions and daily lives. And as a result, Paul can call us to present our lives, ourselves, as living sacrifices. And at that point, Paul is literally using the same language I just said Jimmy and Trisha remind me of. This is your spiritual worship. It is spiritual worship for me to wake up in the morning at 5.30 and somehow pry my children out of bed and get them to worship. It is spiritual worship to sacrificially give of yourself for someone else here at the church. And sometimes that includes crud. Someone forgot to show up and turn the lights off and I've got to drive back to the church and do it. It doesn't always sound spiritual, but it's a living sacrifice. Paul knew he was talking to people who understood the idea of sacrifice. They understood the blood. They understood the death, the finality, the savagery of it all, even in the midst of holy ritual. But Paul says that same intensity is what you're bringing to the table too, each and every day. Now, hold on. I just said you're bringing that to the table. Didn't we just talk about this being passive, something happening to you? Well, this is a big problem, again, with thinking about a learning cycle. Because if you are bringing something to the table that's happened to you, and then we're talking about things that are happening to you, and we're talking about passive things, see, we couldn't at all be talking about some sort of Christian effort. And this is where conversations about grace can sometimes get confusing, can't they? Because Paul has just spent 11 chapters saying, I can be a complete failure at everything God asks me to do, and even that will not be enough to pry me out of his hand. And yet... In light of that, therefore, as you are being changed and shifted, as you are being tested, so to actively present yourselves as living sacrifices to God. The image here is also one of effort. You are both the lamb, useless, bound, coming to die. And you're also the carrier. I don't know about you, but if you've ever carried an animal, much less a dead animal, but a live animal before, I mean, some of you guys have been to your houses, you have dogs that are larger than cows. 
Okay, you have dogs that could have the heft and the weight of what Paul is talking about here in terms of sacrifice. There is also effort here. But that can be good. Because I think we also, again, miss what I said earlier. If we're only learning about this thing and there's never any real application, then we just end going, okay, you know, I feel a little better about Jesus. He loves me a little more than I remembered earlier today. There's not a call to action. What we receive in the text this morning is a both and. That you can do this and you will do this, and you are doing this because of the gospel. But given all of those things, go do it. The learning cycle goes all the way through. You remember grace, but then therefore, because of that grace, as your mind gets transformed, you perpetually, over and over and over again, you keep showing up. Christian, I want you to hear both today. Maybe you struggle with one or the other more. Maybe you struggle with believing God actually loves you. You try and try and try and try and try. And despite actually believing in Jesus, it's just very, very easy to forget the fact that he's going to love you whether or not you fail in this way or you struggle in this way or something happens to you and you don't feel like you can do something as spiritual or not. Others of you struggle in the opposite direction and it is very easy for us to be spiritually lazy. And then I think what we've described this morning is almost a third approach that says for some of us, we're just in spiritual despair mode. We're like, God, I would work for you if I had the energy to do it. Christian, instead, what is about to happen? Paul is going to spend the rest of this book unpacking some incredible challenges to the church. He's going to talk about politics. He's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about personal relationship. He's going to talk about love. He's going to talk about failure my prayer for you is that we would receive each one of these in both of these lights. That these are things that God has equipped and prepared us for and is doing in us and also that we would receive the kick in our butts that we need to go out and to be whom God is calling us to be. God in fact says in another book of Paul, that that very thing that he kicks us and sends us out into, he already prepared beforehand for us to do. And guess what that does? More grace. Because the learning cycle keeps going around. And you and I will keep for the rest of time rehearsing and relaying the faithfulness of God and allowing that to be the thing. Not our ability to kind of rah-rah you, even in a great mission statement or a refresh 2.0, even in the excitement of a new program or seeing kids come to faith in Jesus, we're going to be able to continually talk about the grace 
and activity of God in our lives and in this place. And that will be the fuel to keep doing all of those other things. Christian, keep remembering the grace of God. And also, let's get out there and offer ourselves today and five minutes from now and 10 minutes from now and tomorrow morning when it's Monday morning so it's not Sunday and we're not in a spiritual place and for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thanks for Paul. Thanks for a real person who had a real callus on his hands and real scars on his body and real soreness. Who knew the work and the difficulty it was to serve you, but also had tasted of the incredible grace that you have laid before all of us. Would you please continually be transforming us, Holy Spirit. And God, I do beg of you that sometimes we would be more and more aware of it. We need help sometimes bringing those thoughts of your faithfulness to the table. Would you give us the energy and the encouragement to get out there and to do what you've called us to do, which ultimately is simply to live a life of sacrifice. We pray this in your name. Amen.